This is Art Moves. I want to tell a story. And this story is painful, but I guess it's triumphant at the same time. When I was six years old, my mother took us on a train ride from Newark, New Jersey to Charleston, South Carolina. This was the first time we visited Charleston. It was my mother's hometown, even though she grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. My mother came from what you would call white Negroes at the time, very, very light-skinned black people, but they definitely identified as black, and they were very proud of being black, even though you might not be able to tell it by looking at them. So anyway, part of our journey there, or once, once we got to Charleston, we wanted to go on tours and that kind of thing. So my mother took us to the slave quarters, and I remember the feeling that came over me as a child. I just had a terrible stomach ache. I cried, I was confused. It was very, very, very unpleasant. And it's, it's today that I understand what I experienced. It was a psychic trap. All of that negative energy, all of that tragedy was wrapped up into that moment. It, it, left, it still leaves me speechless. And that was the time, I guess, when I would say that I was moved. And my name is Tony Williams, and I'm joined with... Eli Koslansky. And welcome to Art Moves. We're going to be looking at the intersection of art and slavery. I mean, some, and think about it, it's like, what? The intersection of art and slavery? But guess what, people? There is one. And we have three extraordinarily talented people that we're going to be talking to today. We have Carl Hancock's Rux. He is a storyteller, historian, essayist. We have Hollis King. Oh, wow. When you hear his voice, people, you're going to know what I mean. He is the creative director at the Billy in Bed-Stuy. And then we have the phenomenal Dr. Indira Etraro. She's my buddy, and she's a sweetheart, and she's passionate. And she is the artistic director at the Billy Holiday Theater. So with that, we are going to start to talk about a walk through slavery. Now, I know, Hollis, this was part of a journey that you had to Ghana. Can you share with us how this, what inspired you to write all of this? You know, sometimes your past sits in a chair and just waits for you. Hmm. So there comes a time when you can't put it off anymore. So I decided to go to Ghana and see what that experience was going to be. And while I was there, I always carry sketchbooks and I draw and I make photographs and I put things down in the book, you know, pieces of memory, pieces of awareness of things. And I came back and I thought that would be the end of it. But Dr. Inir Etwaru had other ideas after she heard me read some of it. So I thought, okay. I just said, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to be part of this. This was just personal musings. And so she came back again several months later. And I still was moved. And then the third time, I heard Jeffrey Holder's voice, a person that I was very close to, say, what do you mean you don't want to do it? You've never done it, so what? Just get up and do it. And so I relented, and that's how A Walk into Slavery started. So did it change you? I think... Writing it, going to Ghana, did it change you? I think... Standing in Africa changes you. Mm -hmm. You know, America makes you small, Africa makes you big. Let's talk about that. America makes you small, Africa makes you big. I think 
built into the grain of the society is this idea of containment, words that are built into the lexicon to make you small. I was trying to think about the word minority and what's the reason for using a, a word minority to people who are born in a country? What is the positive side of calling someone a minority? I couldn't find one. So these things are built into the system to contain you. Africa opens you up and say, you know, you are also all of this. You know, our history doesn't start with being in the bottom of a ship. It starts way before that with kings and queens. So let's talk about a walk through slavery because I'm familiar with it, but I'm sure many of our listeners did not have an opportunity to see this piece. So, mm-hmm. so a walk into slavery mm-hmm. is a, a piece of work with Carl Hunt of Cock Rocks, Marcel Davies, directed by Dr. Indira Etwaru. That steps out of what is ordinary and gives you a rather daring look and presentation of what it must be like to be in our heads as African Americans trying to make sense of a system that doesn't necessarily make sense for us. And that being leftovers of something that ended, we are still find, still trying to find our feet and shoes on ground that is solid for us. Now, Carl, uh, Hollis just talked about getting into our heads. Can you share with us what that mean, what that meant to you as you helped to write this piece? Well, I'd also <clears throat> had the same experience as Mr. King, which was gone to Ghana, West Africa, when I was really young at university. I was at Columbia, and I'd never left America before I'd gone to the American University of Paris, and then I went to the University of Ghana to complete my studies. It, so those are the first two places I'd ever been to outside of this country, which is you know, ironic or interesting. Both of those places were inspired by literary figures for me at the time, you know, to think about my young self. You know, I, was, I, I think I was thinking about writers like Baldwin who'd been to Paris, how oh, that must be an important place for me to go, or other writers, other, other African-American writers who've been to France. And then Ghana became this place that I chose because of people like Malcolm X, and because of W.B. Du Bois, and because of uh, Maya Angelou, and all these other writers. And, and I kept thinking, well, this must be an important destination, a place to go to. So I went, and it, and it, 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 it changed and opened my world as well. And I don't, I don't know anybody who hasn't had a cathartic, emotional experience once they leave America for the first time and actually go to West Africa, especially to a place like Ghana, to the ports where thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of our ancestors were shipped for the first time, were shipped through the years, throughout all of them, the Americas, to become what we know now as slaves. It is a, it is a riveting experience because it's, uh, it, it's like returning to the, returning to the original place, mm-hmm. returning to the moment of atrocity, while also returning to the moment, while also returning to the place that is your origin. So, so there's something very beautiful about being on that soil. There's something very wonderful about you know going back to 
place that is in your DNA and then also standing in a place that also represents a moment that is painful and real and has everything to do with who you are and how you come to be an American. Did, in terms of how I dealt with slavery when I was a child, every time it would come up in history class, I would almost feel ashamed and embarrassed and sometimes humiliated. I've grown past that because I've been able to process it. Did it change your feeling around it when you were in West Africa? I personally And never. maybe you didn't feel the way I felt. That's right. perhaps you didn't. I know I did. I mean, it changed the way I felt, but I, but I, but I, I can't say that I ever had a feeling of shame yeah. about slavery. I wasn't raised to have a feeling of shame about slavery. I, I, I wasn't think, raised to. Right. It's just what it was. Because right. I, yeah, I just, right. I used to want to hide when they would get into that part of history. Right, right. In the schools that I went to, because they were predominantly white. Well, I, I understand that, yeah. Carl, where did you grow up? I grew up in New York City. Oh, you did? Uh, but I was a foster child, so I was ah. adopted. I wasn't adopted until I was 15, so I lived with lots of different families. And one of the families that I lived with for years, who I thought would be my adopted family, was an Irish family. Uh, in Massachusetts, it was in Rockport, Massachusetts, and it was an all-white school. I think I might have been the only black kid in that, in that, in that junior high school, and mm -hmm. certainly the only black kid in that family. And so I also had that mm -hmm. experience of mm -hmm. being around a majority whiteness, you know, uh, a community that was majority white, and a school that, major that was majority white. And I think somehow, I mean, I wasn't a radical at eleven or twelve years old. I, mm -hmm. I don't think that I had a radical idea about slavery, mm -hmm. but I think that I had a a sense of myself as belonging to that history, and I did not have a sense of shame. Now, this might be because I am, my personal history probably prepares me for, I should say my immediate personal history, probably prepared me for my ancestral history in ways that other people have not been prepared. How, you know? how would you say that? And what I mean by that is that I don't know who my biological father is. Right. My Biological mother was paranoid schizophrenic and institutionalized. I was born in a mental institution, actually, while she was incarcerated in that institution. No one ever called me son. Even the people who adopted me, I was their nephew. I never called anyone mother or father. I always called them aunt and uncle. So I was always an outsider in terms of what most people knew as a familial structure. you know. And so I, I didn't... Even amongst my friends and, and the other kids, I didn't have the same relationship to family that other people had. So I was aware from a very early age that, that I had come through some trauma and that I existed as a result of some trauma, and here I was. Look at what you've and done. Exactly. Yes. And, and I hadn't done anything then, even as right. a child, but right. I certainly had to. I was, it yeah. was always on my, It was always in my mind. So the, I, I think that the idea of being prepared, that, that, that personal immediate history, immediate familiar history, what I mean by how it might have prepared me for my ancestral history is that slavery has its has those same connotations in so many different ways. I get you. Right. No, it's that, we, that we don't we don't know our yeah. mothers and fathers, right? right? We don't know their names. We yeah, don't know their right. faces. So there's a know? disconnect. There's right. a disconnect yeah, that, that you are always aware of and and you are aware of the atrocity that that created that disconnect and you live with it every day. So in living with that atrocity I don't know if I embraced it as much as it just, it was as clear to me as my 
you know, my being, my complexion, my 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 hair texture. I just I never right. questioned it, never wanted it to be anything else. It was just what it was. Like ambient radiation. Yeah. Hollis, now right. you're from yes, Trinidad. Yes, ma'am. What was your experience with that narrative, with the slave narrative? So imagine as a child growing up in a place where everybody looked like me. The doctors look like me. The PhDs look like me. In my family, we had some people with PhDs. And some of my family members migrated to the United States to go to college and universities. And some of them married African men and moved to Africa. So as a little child growing up, Africa was always a place of pride in my home. People brought sculpture back. My father worked mm -hmm. on ships and traveled and brought back African coins and would tell me about apartheid in South Africa and he would never get off the ship when he got into port in those places. He would stay on the ship. So Africa for me was always a mythical place where I have connections to. And America, coming here as a child to understand my place here, I think that family structure gave me backbone. So, for example, when I went to the School of Visual Arts and I step in the classroom, I'm the only person that looks like me in my class. Mm -hmm. And it's a very difficult class to get into. And I step in the room after I was accepted. I remember the looks that I got, as my dear old friend would remind me, Jeffrey Holder. When you step in a room and the room changes, nothing is wrong with you. Something is wrong with the room. There you go. Right. Exactly. There was a there's a there's a book written by one of the greatest Japanese samurai, a guy named Masashi Miyamoto, who was uh, got to a point where he stopped he was stopped using swords at some point. But he wrote a book called Book of Five Ring about strategy, and one of the things he talked about that you treat every environment you're in as if you're a guest in your own living room, which is interesting because it's your ground, yeah, and their guest. And this is true even, let's say, in situations where it's a life and death situation. In some ways, you're sort of carrying that into the school. Yeah. Yes? Yeah, I think, well, as a matter of fact, I'll show you how it transcends, right? So my daughter goes to the University of Pennsylvania. And the only thing I say to her is, you know, when I went to art school and they would look at me like I had no right to be in the room, I would just say inside of my head, I'm getting ready to kick all your asses. <laughs> exactly. And I tell her that story to take the pen. Exactly. And she smiled, and I think she got it. Yes, and I, I know exactly what you're talking about because there, there was hostility and continues to be hostility, and that can impact you if you don't know who you are, you know? However, I would also like to bring in Dr. Indira Etwaru because you brought this story to life at the Billie Holiday Theater. Talk to us about the significance of 1619 and why you decided to show this work. Yeah, um, it didn't necessarily, the impetus of this work simply began with a story. It's an interesting thing because Hollis and I have this thing where I almost can tell when his notebook is about to run out, and I'll leave an empty notebook on his desk. And he'll walk in, and I don't ever leave a note, but he knows it's from me. And it's sort of my way of saying, I can't wait to see what happens next. Well, one of these notebooks ended up in Ghana, 
And he came back, and we're sitting, and we're looking, and it's the yellow notebook. Is that right, Hollis? And he began to show these incredible sketches and these beautiful photographs. And I said, Hollis, we have to tell the story. And he looked at me, and he ignored me, I think, initially. And then we kept sort of circling back, and we decided to do it. And then I thought, who do we, what who do we bring into the sandbox with us? And my two favorite collaborators as it relates to building something like this is Carl Hancock Rux, um, who we've worked together for so many projects, and Arthur Urinks, who adapted Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God for the American broadcast premiere. So we took a day. We went upstate on a farm, and for a day and a half, we just dreamed out loud we uh, So I just got ideas, and Carl began to send text, and Hollis began to talk, and Arthur began to, you know, sort of shape it. And there was something troubling me, and I wasn't sure what it was. I could not sleep for about a week and a half. And I kept dreaming about a box, and a box, and a box, and what is this box? And I sat in my office and pieced together these almost pieces of scraps of paper until what became our set or a model of our set was built and it was a box that was a frame and the there was there was scrim and the scrim could either disappear and you wouldn't see it or it could contain it could close in and be lit or projected on so it could contain and the box ended up moving at the end of the show and, uh, you know, figuring out this, this notion after hearing all of this text from Carl, which is much more poetic and much more based on prose, and then hearing and juxtaposing that against Hollis's storytelling, the largest metaphor for this piece is how African Americans have existed, very contained for 400 years. The significance of looking at the American story through the lens of the African-American experience is a significant one. It changes everything. All of the questions will be different. The answers that we arrive at shift completely. It's a, it's a real paradigm shift to think of our history from that vantage point. So, so how do we move that kind of story forward? Because I hear from young people, there are those who want to feel as if slavery didn't even exist. You know, they want to dissociate themselves from it because they think it holds them back. So how would we, how can we reframe how it's being taught, how it's perceived? Well, I think, I think there's, a, there's a reason that some people distance themselves from the story. It, it has a lot to do with the psychosocial shame of trauma. Again, mm-hmm. any kind of trauma, right? Any kind yeah. of traumatic history. It's easier sometimes not to deal with pain and to actually try, if you can, to bask in your happiness, you know, or your gladness, right? Or even the present tense, as opposed to looking at the past tense. As you get, but it's an immature feeling. I you think. said immature. Immature. I think that that it has it has an element of immaturity to it. I think that the older you get, the less afraid you become. Learning about those things that may not have been so pleasant that actually uh, were in fact very dark 
very unpleasant and have everything to do with how you came to be, what forged you, you know, what made you. And, and I think that's where art is most profound mm -hmm. because it creates an entrance into some of the darkest spaces. The conversations that came up during rehearsals were absolutely profound. We could not skim over the surface of this topic. We couldn't say, oh, we're going to talk, we're going to do a piece on slavery, but we're not going to feel what that means. Lots of, um, lots of tears during the rehearsal process. And, you know, even on opening night, Hollis, if you don't mind me sharing the, our, what is one of the most profound opening night stories, Hollis is telling the story of stepping into the dungeon. And we add this cue. And the, the sound person, uh, Mauricio, got it so right. This dungeon slams. It's this huge metal door. And that sound just reverberates. And then Hollis is there for quite a few moments in silence. The audience, you can hear a pen drop. And Hollis says, Hollis, what is the lie? There are no, no, you say, Carl, no angels here. No. He says something first, and then I and respond. Then you respond. I say, close the door. Close the door. The, the door angels slams. are crying. The right. angels are crying. And then my character says, no, no angels, angels here. here. Exactly. And Hollis's voice breaks, and he literally begins to get emotional in that moment. And you hear weeping throughout the entire the audience. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a visiting of the ancestors in that moment and an ability for the artist to be vulnerable first, which ushered in a vulnerability for the audience. How did the audience receive this? Hollis, you want to talk about that? Well, I'm in a box with four projectors. <laughs> 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 I'm getting, you know, I'm getting heat. Like the chicken in, <laughs> in Kentucky Fried Chicken. And Hollis never leaves the, the box the entire and I'm in, show. And I'm in the box for an hour. The lights are so bright that I don't, I very rarely see any glimpse of a silhouette of the audience at all. I am just in there talking. But in between the moments, you hear the sniffling. So I remember there's a point where I talk about being in a plane. And I say, while looking out the window, distracted by the puffy clouds, I see a highway of bones between Africa and the Americas where two and a half million Africans have been swallowed up whole. And you hear after that number, you hear the gasp in the crowd mm -hmm. and they are in it with you. They are fully invested and they are riding with you. And you feel it. You feel you feel them with you. And that's what it feels like. Was it a diverse audience? It was a diverse mm -hmm. audience, but the majority uh, was, pe uh, was, it was comprised of people of African descent. We also used uh, Marcel Davis Halashley, an uh, incredible vocalist, brought such a dynamic texture to this. And she represented Africa. Carl represented sort of the gatherer, the gatherer of souls that have been lost over 400 years, that they're never lost. Um, he represented this sort of omnipotent figure. 
godlike figure and we illuminated his brownness with how we did everything but we also used music and song to hit some really tough things like the line what happened before is happening now can happen again and we sort of put it to a jingle um so it just became like this repetitive motif that just kept coming back that the uh, that after a while it morphed because at first it was very light and then there was a moment where we projected on the screens a confederate flag when that was being played what the happen again can happen again yeah, is I, that something I, that people are believing right now i mean is i mean just just are we believing that that could happen again i think that we should believe yeah. that it can okay. happen again. Why? I think that uh, anybody who is paying attention to um, just American politics, uh, to the idea of uh, children being separated from families, uh, families that are incarcerated, uh, um, uh, racist uh, dialogue and diatribe uh, better, that, that, that's being espoused by political leaders um, people who are actually in, this, in, in positions of power, so-called presidents of the United States or whatever. Um, uh, this, this, I was watching, which is really interesting, I was watching, because it was a rerun of an interview that they did with Melania Trump the other day. I, I think it was on CNN, but she was, when she was dressed in her in her safari outfit, <laughs> when she that that time when she's gone. Oh, you mean to, Indiana Jones? Uh, right. Yeah, when she wears her Indiana Jones outfit, right, and she's being interviewed, and she's talking, and she's in Africa because that that's where that interview is happening, and everything was about her. You know how she felt like she was the most, you know, disrespected, you know, person on the planet, and she's in Africa. You know, no, 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 no the privilege. Exactly yeah. right. So I mean, I, which which would sort of hit me because you're sitting here in this colonial outfit, right, in this, this outfit, and you're in you're in this place where all this atrocities happen. Yet all you can say is that you feel that you are the most disrespected person on the planet. You know uh, that, and it blew my mind. And then also the the, the when the concept came up about um, about immigrants. Uh, you know, like immigration and how mm-hmm. her how her parents had benefited from immigration, how she benefit benefited from immigration, and she'd said something like, "You know, well, we we just want to make sure that you know the right people come in." Or wore that jacket. She said that. that yeah, jacket. she did say that. Wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. the jacket. Yeah, she said that. Yeah. Right. When, when trying to explain her husband, she was saying that I think what he's saying is that we want, we want to make sure that the right people come in. Yeah, that's classic. So who are the right people that come in? And who gets to define what right is? Exactly. Right. Right. And and Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. I mean that was a, that was a sobering moment in American history mm-hmm. when those tiki mm-hmm. torches and white supremacy chants and the actual language of killing people based on ethnicity was being covered as headlines that was sobering and then even more sobering was a president's reaction to that. To say that they, they, they were, they were G- good, good on people sides, on, on both sides. sides. That's exactly. sobering. Mm-hmm. That that was a really mm-hmm. sobering yeah. moment. I mean, I, I think for me, before I went to this trip and putting it off all the time, what occurred to me was I experienced daily trauma just before the trip from all of the killed Michael Brown, Sandra Bland. I wanted to understand 
why is this still happening? And why are we always dead on the ground? Hmm. And why the people who kill you get away? Why is it okay? Where's our full humanity? And so every time something like this happens, I get really traumatized. I actually feel afraid. And I said, well, as an artist, what do you do? So I said, let me start at the source to try to understand what it is we're looking at because it's all tied to the 1619 first landing on the shore. It all goes right back to that. We are still trying to find our humanity. We just want to be treated normal. So would you say that one of the powers of the artwork is that you're you're reframing the context to a large extent. In some ways, you're sort of shifting a narrative and asking the same question, that question of like, you know, are African-Americans victims or creator of the creators of their history? Well, I think African-Americans are amazing when you look at this journey to be standing here. It's a kind of black magic to be standing here sitting between each one of us here is the trauma of rape, murder, drowning, mm. working to death, and we are still standing. I love what August Wilson says about, about us in America being leftover people. Mm. We were not supposed to be here. And I think <laughs> trying to make sense of this for ourselves requires us to go into these dark and painful spaces to gain our humanity. I was thinking place and time. We happen to be here now, but history is so long. You know, it, it, that's kind of how I, I deal with it. It's like, this is where we are now, mm -hmm. but where are we going to be 200 years from mm -hmm. now? And where were we 1,000 years ago? You know, it's, it's, it's so fluid. It mm -hmm. moves. I don't mean, I try not to take it there for mm -hmm. myself mm -hmm. because I just feel like this color is a social construct. Mm -hmm. What is it really? What is this? It's what people make it in their heads, but I don't have to buy that. You know, some, somebody told me that, I don't know if it's true or not, that mm -hmm. genetically, the difference between us genetically and chickens is around 30%. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like, look at all these people fighting over religions. Like, I don't know how to tell you this, but, you know, you yeah, have to fall I mean, off I mean, from a tree. It, it's a construct for, you know, economic oppression. That's kind of how I see it. There's nothing more to it than that. And I hold to that, rea to that reality. Mm -hmm. But then I've been blessed, too. Mm -hmm. you see, know, I it's would, so I easy to, when you've been blessed. Well, they, uh, you what, know, famous no. people have said for hundreds of years now that the arc of the moral universe is long. Mm -hmm but it bends towards justice. justice. And you know, Love one it. of the things to go back to the walk into slavery that we all agreed on as self-identifying artists of African descent is that we would move from the place of the triumph of the human spirit. Mm -hmm. We were not, we all committed that this wouldn't be a go down, you know, yeah. Moses, <laughs> yeah, yeah, waiting, right, right. you know. Right. Oh, the Egypt land, right? The Egypt land. <laughs> you know, we Pharaoh. all agreed, right. we all sort of had right. a consensus uh -huh. about that, that we were going to illuminate it from that moral arc 
and the responsibility not only of people of African descent to tell their stories. It was very intentional to make Africa a woman. That was very intentional because the woman of African descent still remains the most marginalized human being across the globe. That was intentional, Mm -hmm. that the pivot point that Hollis had to relate to, that Carl had to relate to, was a, a person, a being of African descent that was in the body of a woman. So really figuring out how do we tackle in a nuanced way all of these marginalizations, but do it from a place of triumph. And our audiences told us that it felt 21st century. Good. Mm-hmm. That Good. we that's kept we hearing that, mm-hmm. that we've yes. not seen this story before. Right. And right. that's what we were trying to do, yeah. tell there, yes. an old story in a very new way. And I want to add something what you were saying about this thing, about, econ- about the economic aspect to it. I also believe in some ways going on what uh, Alice said about black magic. I would submit in some ways is also a fear of personal and cultural power. So it's in some ways not a weakness because you think about all the amazing things that were created by the culture here in the United States and who these people are and human beings, how they are with mannerisms, stuff like that. I, th- I would submit that's part of it too. Well, we've been fighting racism as a country when we really should be fighting white supremacy, which is that it's not about a disliking of a certain race. It's about wanting to maintain control and power, economic power, um, economic power, uh, artistic power, cultural power, political power over people of African descent. So it's never about not liking. I mean, they love black folks, if you will. Um, our culture, our music, the tanning, the we could go on and on about that, right? So it's not a disliking of. It is about a need to maintain control and you know, she's resting in great peace. But the last thing, one of the last greatest articles Toni Morrison wrote was that Trump in office was a response to white America not wanting to lose that supreme control over America. Interesting and, mm-hmm. and valid. Another question, and this is charged, but I've always I've had conversations with Indira about this, and that's the N-word. You know, the N-word, there's a historical context with the N-word, and now it's extremely commercial. People use it all the time. It's in rap music. It's just everywhere. What's your feeling about that word? Well, there's, there's a quote I want to get into to, to all of it, if you don't mind. And then I think, and I think it's applicable. It's a Zora Neale Hurston quote, which is that, <laughs> that research is poking and prying with a purpose. It is a seeking that he who wishes may know the cosmic secrets of the world and they that dwell therein. So I think that our relationship to the N-word should be a relationship of research, should be, a re- should be a relationship of etymology, should be a relationship of history. It's really not until the 18th century, actually, that it has its own negative connotations within uh, this, 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 this idea of, you know, negra, noir, Whatever mm-hmm. language you know, whether it was Portuguese, whether it was Spanish, whether it was French, that it's that it, that 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 within this within this formation of chattel slavery, it suddenly becomes you know this word that we call the N word as a, a negative oppressive word, um, but it existed for centuries actually before that, right? And and simply meant black in certain mm-hmm. ways, right? Now I don't mean that the word 
the way that we're saying it meant black. I'm just talking about the etymology of the word, right? So it's a bastardization of a word. Mm -hmm. And then there's a reclaiming, you know, which is what was sort of interesting. And I've always been fascinated by that as well. Like when I was young and listening to people like the last poets, Abiyodun Ayawale mm -hmm. and all, you know, all these, these poets in the 60s, and they were reclaiming this word with a certain kind of, I don't know, I don't know if I want to say power, but certainly it was a powerful reclaiming of the word, and that, that blew my mind. And it wasn't, that, it wasn't that they were giving me permission to say the word every day, but they were reclaiming it and saying, uh, they were taking the power away, stripping it of its ownership that it had. That it had. And it had, it had had a Eurocentric ownership. And they were stripping away that ownership and saying, you know, we're going to use this word and we're going to, you know, use it in this way. You know, we're going to talk to each other uh, uh, using this word in that way. So I, I, I think that, um, I think the word, I would never, I would never ask anyone to embrace the word or I would never ask anyone to um, dismiss the word. I would simply say that we should all research the word and understand the word and understand what words do, how they change, what they become, and what your power is, your relationship, your powerful relationship to language can become. Oh, interesting. What so in some ways, it's embedded, it's embedded not so much in the word about the, it's a reframing of it. Yeah, you know, essentially the same thing happened with the word propaganda, which originally was from the church. It was the propagation of the faithful. And it wasn't until World War I when the English used it to demonize the Germans, and that's where it took on its negative connotation. So would you say in some ways that, that this generation, the, this millennials and Generation Z are recontextualizing it? I think, I, think, I, think, I think a lot of them do, but I also think, I'll be very honest, I do think that there are some people, I do think that there, there, are, some, there are some people, and I've, I've run across them, kids in the street who are recontextualizing without knowing that they're recontextualizing, and that sometimes bothers me a little mm -hmm. bit. I mean, I almost want them to not be so casual about it, uh, to you know, to actually to to, to, to understand to understand what they're saying and why they're saying it and who it might offend and what it means and what mm -hmm. the history is. So that's so you know, so I, I don't mind if you're recontextualizing with information, but if you're recontextualizing without information, then you're doing something very dangerous. Right? What about you, Hollis? Yeah. It's not a word I would use because I know the meaning of the word and the intention of the word. The intention is always hurt at the middle of it. I also love James Baldwin's view of the word. He says, we did not invent the N-word. You invented the N-word because you needed to have an N. You the, you the N, I'm not the N. I did not invent it. I don't think words like that is generally meant to enhance someone's life. And whether you know, it's your responsibility to know the usage and the history. But in my, in my world, I think if I use that word, it would be pretty, pretty tragic for me because I would knew the intention and, and the existence of it throughout history. You talked about, Alice, you talked about this idea about the disconnect that you felt, not only just in Ghana, but also in your personal life. But in some ways, would you submit that's also power center or generator of your art to a certain extent, and in some ways aren't these younger generations who are recontextualizing? You said Hollis, you mean Carl, right? I mean Carl, yes, yeah, sorry. sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, absolutely. I think, every, I, think everything I, I think everything I do is born, no, 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 that's okay. I think everything I do is born from that experience. Every, you know, th that, that, that poking and prying with a purpose. You know, I was born with a huge question mark. 
because there mm -hmm. weren't a lot of answers. And I had, and the answers that I have, I had to suss out. And some of them are still coming. That's, that's an amazing journey in life to live when you, when you realize that, you know, you're, you know, every day there's a, there's, 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 there's a, there's a bit more, there's another piece to the puzzle that you, that, 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 and some, some of these pieces may never actually be found, you know, in, in my personal story. And it's the same, and the same is true of our, you know, of our, of our cultural and ethnographic history. You know, there are some pieces to the puzzle that are still being unearthed, that we are still discovering, we're constantly discovering. I mean, it's not until the 21st century, right, that we even find the in New York City, the African burial ground in New York City, and then later we find another Afri African burial ground in Harlem, and we did not have that information, and it took us all these years to find that. I mean, we are constantly just, you know, digging up dirt, right, digging up the dirt, you know, digging carefully excavating, 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 excavating constantly, right. and finding something else out about us, about how we talked, how where we lived, uh, what we ate, what we did, uh, where we migrated, uh, how we existed, that we were not all slaves, uh, you know, even during the era of slavery, that there were many of us who were actually had tremendous wealth even in this country and were free, and how there were systematic <coughs> programs created in order to rob us of that wealth and, and that power and that ownership of of any kind of monetary gain, so that we could always sort of fall back behind the 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 the, the dominant possessive race. So how it connects to art in a certain extent, it's it's really those missing pieces of the puzzle that gives the power to the work to a large extent, because it allows the audience or you know whoever's engaging with it to be able to fill in the blanks. The best thing anybody can ever do with their lives is to have a question. Want to know, and I guess this will part and parcel be part of the closing. So, Indira, what does it mean to be free? You know, I have. It's we not just. Be on the test, we just. <laughs> no, yeah. We just did. We just did an exercise with our community. I'm going to respond on behalf of the 154 Bedsty residents because we did an event on August 25th, which is the actual date that the White Lion, the first slave ship that brought 20 or so people to land and began what has been an extraordinary journey. And the answers were as diverse as people of African descent themselves. People talked about being able to not teach their sons how to stay alive on the streets. People talked about being able to own homes. People talked about being able to, you know, know that when they apply to college, their application is going to be considered in the same merit. Barely. Black women wrote about making as much as a white male. So the answers were just as diverse as people of African descent themselves. And we as black folks, we do have a vision for the future. And I think that the more we spend our time on building the new and not fighting the old, will have some powerful legacies to leave behind. So that's all the time we, first of all, thank you. This was one rich discussion. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm just marveling at all of you. Thank you so much, Carl Hancock's Rucks and Hollis King and Dr. Indira Etwalu. Thank you, Tony. Thank, thank you. you so Thank you, Eli. Thank, thank you for the work. We need to bring them back. Right, <laughs> right. Like, uh, chapter one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, 
what we're going to do is close our show down and find some art that moves you. Yeah. Yes. Find some art that moves you and share it with someone. Produced in partnership with Schneps Media and the Brooklyn Arts Council. Find some art that moves you and share it.